Hello, this is Father John Arthur or Associate Pastor at Holy Ghost Catholic Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. This is our 40th presentation on Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body, the 133 talks prepared by Pope John Paul II, delivered during the years 1979 through 1984. We're indebted to Professor Michael Waldstein, whose edition we're using. Concupiscence, Reduction of a Perennial Call. In the last reflection, we asked, what is the concupiscent desire about which Christ speaks in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. We recall that he speaks about it in relation to the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. The very act of desiring, more precisely looking to desire, is defined as adultery committed in the heart. This gives us much food for thought. In the preceding reflections, we said that by expressing himself in this way, Christ wanted to point out to his listeners the detachment from the spousal meaning of the body experienced by man, in this case by the male, when he gives in to the concupiscence of the flesh with an interior act of desire The detachment from the spousal meaning of the body at the same time brings with it a conflict with its dignity as a person, an authentic conflict of conscience. At this point, it becomes clear that the biblical and thus also the theological meaning of desire differs from the purely psychological one. The psychologist describes desire as an intense orientation toward the object caused by its characteristic value. In the case considered here, it is caused by its sexual value. It seems that we find such a definition in the majority of works devoted to these topics. The biblical description, by contrast, while not underrating the psychological aspect, emphasizes above all the ethical one, given that there is a value that suffers harm. Concupiscent desire, I would say, is the deception of the human heart with regard to the perennial call of man and woman to communion through a reciprocal gift, a call that has been revealed in the very mystery of creation. Thus, when in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, Christ refers to the heart or to the inner man, his words do not cease to be charged with that truth about the beginning to which he had referred the whole problem of man, woman, and marriage in answer to the Pharisees. See Matthew chapter 19, verse 8. The perennial call, which we have tried to analyze following Genesis, above all Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. See Theology of the Body. 9 through 19, and in some way also the perennial and reciprocal attraction of the man to femininity and of the woman to masculinity is an invitation mediated by the body, but it is not the desire signified by the words of Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. Desire as a realization of concupiscence of the flesh also, and above all, in the purely interior act, diminishes the meaning of what this invitation and this reciprocal attraction were, and substantially do not cease to be. The eternal feminine thus 
iwi wiblish, just like, for that matter, the eternal masculine, tends, even on the level of historicity, to free itself from mere concupiscence, and seeks a place of affirmation on the level proper to the world of person. The original shame about which Genesis chapter 3 speaks testifies to this fact. The dimension of the intentionality of thoughts and hearts constitutes one of the main guiding threads of universal human culture. Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount confirm precisely this dimension. Nevertheless, these words clearly say that desire is part of the reality of the human heart. When we say that in comparison with the original reciprocal attraction of masculinity and femininity, desire represents a reduction, what we have in mind is an intentional reduction, a restriction, as it were, or closure of the horizon of the mind and heart. It is, in fact, one thing to be aware that the value of sex is part of the whole richness of values with which a feminine being appears to a man. It is quite another thing to reduce the whole personal richness of femininity to this one value, that is, to sex as the fitting object of the satisfaction of one's own sexuality. One can apply the same reasoning to what masculinity is for a woman, although the words of Matthew chapter 5, verses 27-28 refer directly only to the other relation. The intentional reduction is, as one can see, above all, of an axiological nature. On the one hand, the eternal attraction of the man toward femininity, see Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, frees him, or perhaps it ought to free, a wide range of spiritual carnal desires that are, above all, personal and of communion in their nature. See the analysis of the beginning with a proportional hierarchy of values that corresponds to these desires. On the other hand, lustful desire limits this range and obscures the hierarchy of values characteristic of the perennial attraction of masculinity and femininity. Lustful desire has the effect that in the interior, in the heart, in man and woman's interior horizon, the meaning of the body proper to the person itself is obscured. In this way, femininity ceases to be, above all, a subject for masculinity. It ceases to be a specific language of the spirit. It loses its character as a sign. It ceases, I would say, to bear on itself the stupendous spousal meaning of the body. It ceases to be located in the context of the consciousness and experience of this meaning. The desire born precisely from concupiscence of the flesh, from the first moment of its existence in the man's interior, of its existence in his heart, bypasses this context in some way, to use an image, one could say it tramples on the ruins of the spousal meaning of the body and of all its subjective components, and in virtue of its own axiological intentionality, it aims directly toward one and only one end as its precise object, to satisfy only 
the body's sexual urge. According to the words of Christ, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, such an intentional and axiological reduction can only occur already in the sphere of a look or looking, or rather in the sphere of a purely interior act expressed by looking. A look, or rather looking, is in itself a cognitive act. When concupiscence enters into its inner structure, the look takes on the character of concupiscent knowledge. The biblical expression look to desire can refer either to a cognitive act that the man makes use of in desiring, thus giving it the character proper to a desire stretched out toward an object, or to a cognitive act that arouses desire in the other, subject and above all in his will and in his heart. As one can see, it is possible to give an intentional interpretation of an interior act when one has the one or the other pole of man's psychology in mind, knowledge or desire understood as apitus. Apitus is something broader than desire because it indicates everything that manifests itself in the subject as aspiration, and as such, it is always oriented toward an end, that is, toward an object known under the aspect of value. Yet an adequate interpretation of the words of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, requires that through the intentionality proper to knowledge or apitus, we notice something more, namely the intentionality of man's very existence in relation to another, in our case, of the man in relation to the woman, and of the woman in relation to the man. We should return to this topic, see Theology of the Body 41. In concluding today's reflection, one should add that in this desire, in looking to desire, as discussed in the Sermon on the Mount, the woman ceases to exist as a subject of the eternal attraction and begins to be only an object of carnal concupiscence for the man who looks in this way, the deep inner detachment from the spousal meaning of the body about which we spoke already in the preceding reflection is part of this change and with these words our holy father pope john paul ii concluded his fortieth presentation in his catechetical series man and woman he created them a theology of the body in order for us to appreciate pope john paul ii's fortieth catechesis it's good for us to remember where we've been and where we are. He's speaking to us about the words of Christ. He spoke to us about Christ appealing to the beginning, having been asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Pope John Paul II responds, it was because of the hardness of your hearts that Moses permitted the decree of divorce. It was not that way in the beginning. In the beginning, God created them male and female, the good creation. At last this one, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, the original unity of man, Christ appeals to the beginning. But here we are in the second part of the first part of the theology of the body. And in this part, John Paul II is focusing our attention on the words of Christ where he appeals to the human heart. 
You have heard it said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks with lust upon another, whoever has a disordered desire in his heart, has already committed adultery in his heart. Pope John Paul II has spoken to us about the man of concupiscence, the man who has a tendency to sin, which is a consequence of the fall of original sin, which we have inherited. In this part of the theology of the body, he is speaking to us about the commandment and about ethos, what good we are to do. God has commanded us to be pure of heart. God has commanded us to not commit adultery. Now Christ commands us anew, not even to look with lust upon another. And when we're faithful to the commandments of God, doing good and avoiding evil, there is a certain ethos, a spirit to the way we live, certain manner of life consistent with following Christ. Pope John Paul II has spoken to us about our inner state, the inner state of the man of concupiscence, how as a consequence to the fall, we have a tendency to do evil within us, not only in our exterior acts, but internally. Pope John Paul II has spoken to us about Christ's call to halt at the threshold of the look, to keep a guard over our eyes. But in this 40th catechesis, in this 40th presentation on man and woman, he created them a theology of the body. He speaks to us yet again about concupiscence, about a reduction of the perennial call. There are some, supposedly, who downplay the role of concupiscence in the thought of John Paul II's Theology of the Body. But not only does he have a dedicated section of the work, it seems to be appearing throughout. So let us give attention, let us pay attention to his words. For while they are not inspired as sacred scripture is the inspired word of God, the protection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the protection of the Holy Spirit, first promised to St. Peter, is not absent in the words, in the utterances of his successor. He who hears you hears me, Christ tells the apostles. And Pope John Paul II was for so many years the vicar of Christ on earth, the successor to St. Peter, the head of the Apostolic College, the College of Bishops. And he spoke these words of encouragement to strengthen us, adopted brothers and sisters to Christ by grace and faith and baptism. Let us be attentive as we can. Pope John Paul II said, To give in to the concupiscence of the flesh with an interior act of desire is to detach from the spousal meaning of the body and to be in conflict with the personal dignity of each one an authentic conflict of conscience. Sometimes people will posit a conflict of conscience and it is entirely imaginary. But here Pope John Paul II is presenting an authentic conflict of conscience because a rightly formed conscience does not give in to the concupiscence of the flesh. So the conflict arises with a rightly formed conscience and a disordered desire to give in to the concupiscence of the flesh with an interior act. When Jesus Christ tells us not to look upon another with desire, lest we commit adultery in our hearts, he tells us not to have that concupiscent desire, not to sin with our eyes, with our hearts. Because when we look at another in this way, it detaches from the spousal meaning of the body. The body is made for marriage. Husband and wife are made for each other, this man for that woman. And to look at another 
in this disordered way is to already sin, is to degrade the other and ourselves, to deny the personal dignity. I am made in the image of God. She is made in the image of God. Elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Christ says what? Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God, not only in the hereafter, but even in the way I look upon the other, the way a husband looks at his wife, the way the wife looks at her husband, pure of heart. There is a wholesome and natural, a good desire that a husband and wife should have for each other. But the Pope is reminding us of the words of Christ. He's calling husbands and wives to look upon each other in that pure and chaste way. And for the rest of us, to be pure and chaste in the way we look at each other also. The Holy Father used the phrase eternal feminine and eternal masculine in this 40th catechesis. And there was no footnote there, but I believe it is a reference to a greater world of culture, which we won't enter into here, although it can be seen as an idealism of sorts. He said, the eternal feminine, masculine, tends on the level even of historicity to free itself from mere concupiscence. Here it is uh, looking down upon concupiscence. Concupiscence is no good. Mere concupiscence and seeks a place of affirmation on the level proper to the world of persons. There is a proper affirmation. There is a proper desire. In the world of persons, this human person, this man, this human person, this woman, this husband, this wife, human persons, made for each other, made to live in communion. Not an imaginary man, not an imaginary woman, but real persons, real human beings in the world, in this day and age, in the day and age when Christ walked the earth, before his ascension, after his ascension, in the days of St. Peter, in the days of the successor of St. Peter, historical persons, actual human beings. This is possible. It's possible to be a saint. There are those who say it's impossible. It's possible. With God's grace, with his help, with his power given to us through the sacraments, through his mystical body, which is his bride, mother, church. John Paul II continues, The desire born precisely from concupiscence, that's the disordered desire, from concupiscence of the flesh, tendency to sin with our bodies, from the first moment of its existence in man's interior, we're born with concupiscence. We're conceived in concupiscence, the fall of man, not by imitation, but by transmission, of its existence in his heart, and aims directly toward one and only one end, goal, as its precise object, to satisfy only the body's sexual urge. This is concupiscence. This is the disordered desire. Pope John Paul II, in a poetic flourish, identifies this as trampling on the ruins of the spousal meaning of the body, the spousal meaning of the body disfigured by sin, disfigured by concupiscence, by a disordered desire, which Christ warns us of in the Sermon on the Mount. Whoever looks with desire has already committed adultery in the heart, Christ calling us to holiness, Christ calling us to purity. Christ calling us to chastity. Interesting again to see here the role of concupiscence, concupiscence of the flesh present in man from the first moment of his existence, albeit not in 
the first moment of the existence of our first parents, but in the first moment of existence of all of their descendants. How far we have gone astray from God's original plan for us. Thanks be to God, he did not leave us to our own devices, but came to save us in Christ, the perfect man, who never had a disordered look or a disordered desire, who came to fulfill the law and the prophets, and to give us the grace to follow him faithfully. Pope John Paul II continues, In the concupiscent look, in the concupiscent desire, as discovered in the Sermon on the Mount, the woman ceases to exist as a subject of the eternal attraction and begins to be only for the man who looks this way an object of carnal concupiscence. It's a dehumanizing look, this concupiscent look, this concupiscent gaze, this disordered desire, this desire which is born of a tendency to sin. It degrades the woman. Instead of being the subject of attraction, she becomes merely an object. The same is true for a woman who looks in this disordered way. Christ has come to redeem us. Christ has come to call us to purity of heart. Christ has come to save us from the tendency we have to sin in our bodies, to restore us to the original goodness in which we were made. Christ has come to remind us what is truly attractive about us, not merely our smiles or our voice or our bodies, but even our minds, our souls, our hearts, made to his image, made to glorify him. Glorify God in your bodies, we read in sacred scripture. And John Paul II is calling us to do just that, in purity and chastity, not according to our disordered desires, our base-most desires. John Paul II continues his 40th Catechesis on the Theology of the Body by reminding us that concupiscent desire is the deception of the human heart with regard to the perennial call of man and woman to communion through a reciprocal gift, a call that has been revealed in the very mystery of creation. This phrase, a perennial call, is very rich. It means from the beginning, perennial, every year and every year. For all eternity, there is a perennial call to holiness, a call to holiness which does not cease. Do not be deceived. Our first parents were deceived, and how often in various marketing, if you drink this coffee, you'll be popular. If you drive this car, you'll be happy. If you take these pills, potions, what have you, all will be well in the world. Do not be deceived. The father of lies, the father of deception, is Satan, is the devil. But Christ has overcome the cross, the grave, sin, Satan, and we are victorious in Christ because we answer his call to communion. Communion with Christ, in Christ, with one another. John Paul II analyzed the perennial call and the perennial reciprocal attraction of the man to femininity and of the woman to masculinity earlier in his presentations on the theology of the body, numbers 9 through 19, as an invitation mediated by the body, but different from, not the desire signified by the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. The Pope does not use the word homosexuality here. He does not use the word sodomy here. But when he addresses a perennial 
reciprocal attraction of the man to femininity and of the woman to masculinity, we can see that the same-sex attraction is not of the same category. Perennial reciprocal attraction of the man to femininity and of the woman to masculinity from all eternity. This is God's plan. It's a perennial call, perennial attraction. The body mediates the attraction, but not just the body, the soul too, because we are incarnate beings. There is a natural, a wholesome desire, a wholesome attraction, and there is the disordered desire, disordered attraction, and that's what the Lord Jesus is warning us of in the gospel. That's what Pope John Paul II, the Vicar of Christ, is warning us of in the theology of the body. So often there are those who will say, oh, the church is against homosexual people. No, the church is calling all of us to chastity because Christ calls us all to chastity, to purity of heart, to correspond with the nature he has given us from the beginning, the perennial nature. John Paul II continues his presentation of this 40th catechesis, the theology of the body, by addressing desire, representing a reduction an intentional reduction, a restriction or closure of the horizon of the mind and the heart in comparison with the original reciprocal attraction of masculinity and femininity. Pope John Paul II, as a philosopher, was trained, was steeped in the philosophical school of phenomenology, which uses the term reduction as a technical term. Here he's not using the word reduction in that phenomenological sense. He's using it in the pejorative sense, the disordered desire representing a reduction, a put-down, an intentional reduction, a willed put-down, a restriction or closure of the horizon of the mind. Don't they tell us, oh, you have to have an open mind? Well, disordered desire reduces, shrinks our ability to understand, our ability to love in accordance with God, who is love and the will of God for us. And here, in this 40th Catechesis, we see Pope John Paul II showing the link between the mind and the heart, what we know and what we love, how we know and how we love. Secundum nature, according to nature, or contra naturum, against nature, the original reciprocal attraction of masculinity and femininity, part of the good creation, to disregard the natural reciprocal, original reciprocal attraction between man and woman, masculine and feminine, male and female, is to prefer the fall, is to prefer sin to grace. Lustful desire, Pope John Paul II continues, limits the range of personal communion and obscures the hierarchy of values characteristic of the perennial attraction of masculinity and femininity. This attraction for all time distorted by lust, that disordered desire, that disordered activity, sexually speaking. The hierarchy of values is a key term which the Pope does not explain here entirely, but the founding fathers of the country cite it indirectly when they say there is a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Because if I'm not alive, I cannot act freely, I cannot pursue happiness. The other two presuppose the first. Finally, Pope John Paul II has this to say, a look, or rather looking, is in itself a cognitive act. The biblical expression, look to desire, 
can refer either to a cognitive act that the man makes use of in desiring, or to a cognitive act that arouses desire in the other subject to have the look as a cognitive act, cognition, an act of intelligence, the act of our rationality. I see now, we say so often, the light bulb goes on in the comics. John Paul II has spoken these 40 conferences to help reflect the light of Christ, who is the light of the world, who made us for himself, who with the Father and the Spirit made us in the divine image to know and love even as we are known and loved by God. Until next time, God bless you.